Well, by the looks of things, the Roman Catholic Church was right. If we have a Reformation and we allow these crazy Protestants to go out and propagate all of their crazy ideas, they're just going to discard all kinds of things about Orthodox Christianity. And I look around today, and I see the evangelical world, and I see that they have discarded the basic biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper. Nobody cares about the Lord's Supper. Even Who cares about the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Maybe we'll have it once in a while for a good emotional experience, a good way to draw us back to remember what Christ did on the cross, and that'll suffice. But you know what? The Lord's Supper is central in the lives of Christians. It has been throughout the history of the Lord's Church, and today, not only has the broader evangelical world changed its understanding of the Lord's Supper and rejected the biblical understanding, but they've put it on the back burner. They relegated it to something that doesn't even matter. Is the Roman Catholic Church right? Well, if we don't get our act together, maybe they were. Stay tuned with us tonight on Sinners and Saints. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, and if you don't care a lot about the Lord's Supper, you should care about it after listening to this show. Thanks for joining us on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Thanks for joining us right now on Sinners and Saints. I'm Adam Kalustian, a pastor at Ontario United Reformed Church, here with the Reverend Moses Jambazian of Pasadena United Reformed Church and John Sautel of All Saints Reformed Church in the city of Walnut, California. We're glad that you have uh, joined us for our discussion about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And guys, I'm really concerned that people simply don't care about this topic. Well, you're right. Uh, take a poll of 10 evangelical Christians walking down the street. Ask them a simple question. When was the last time you took the Lord's Supper, and what does it mean to you? Does it have any positive benefit on your spiritual life? And I'll guarantee you 10 out of 10 of them will say that it's a, a memorial service and it's nice to do once every couple of three months. And it's, it's important. I mean, a good evangelical Christian will at least acknowledge that it's a ceremony that Christ instituted in the Bible, and he has given it to us that we might really contemplate what he did for us on the cross. But it might surprise you, it might not, for you to know that that understanding is paltry. It's memorialistic. I, I, I don't even know how significant people would say. I would, at best, they would say it's a memorial opportunity for me to remember Jesus. And the critics of Protestantism in general will say, see, this is the problem with you people, that you have basically rejected thousands of years of reflection on the Scripture as it pertains to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper— and so it's led to you just getting rid of it. What we want to do on this show today is convince you that you have to understand the basic Bible teachings about what the Lord's Supper is. You have to learn to come to appreciate it, and you have to be in a church that understands it biblically and administers it according to the command of Christ. I would say one reason why, among evangelicals and fundamentalists, the reason why the Lord's Supper is so minimalized and marginalized, uh, first of all, one of the reasons why, 
is that because they have a conception that Jesus and the gospel is for getting me in. It's about getting me into Christianity. It's about getting my sins forgiven from the past. It's about getting myself saved. That's what Jesus does. And then what I do is I get some really good law, very good personal, practical, helpful instruction on the Christian life, and then I follow that. That's how I get sanctified. And so Jesus is irrelevant to my sanctification life in general because he's for getting in. And therefore, the Lord's Supper, since it's all about constantly communing with Jesus, to them, they don't, they don't have a category for this. And it's true. It's this big problem that Christianity has today, which is that it has become so individualistic that it fails to understand the relation that we are to have with Christ, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and we draw nourishment and sustenance from him. And that neglect, I think, has led to a great poverty in Christian life. Yeah, but uh, you're right. But that is one of the key verses that's completely misunderstood. Because they'll, say, they'll point to that text and say, yeah, you're supposed to abide in the vine. Abiding in the vine is keeping Jesus' commandments. And so you're only proving to me what I don't need is more communication, communion with Christ in the supper. What I need is more law. Okay, but you guys are using this term, communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. I, what we want to do today, or what we want to do in this show, is walk you through the basic meaning of the Lord's Supper and why it's so important. I'm going to throw out an expression, and then we're going to define it very carefully for everybody listening. The Lord's Supper is an intensification of our mystical union with Christ. The Lord's Supper is an intensification of our mystical union with Christ. Now, I expect that a lot of you listening are like me, who not that long ago in my life, when I would have heard that expression, intensification of mystical union with Christ, I thought, what are you talking about? That's crazy. I mean, it sounds to me like one of those strange things that the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church <laughs> believes, or Roman Catholicism and some of their mysteries. But, you know, actually, intense, the Lord's Supper as an intensification of the mystical union with Christ is a Protestant idea. It is what Reformed people believe. And you, as a Christian, better understand what the Bible teaches about that to honor the Lord's Supper. So we'll start by asking the question, what is our mystical union with Christ? What does that mean? The mystical union with Christ is something that is defined from Scripture. Paul says that we are in union with him, with him as the head, and we are grafted into him, and we are the body various parts of the body, and we are held together by the joints and ligaments with our head, Jesus Christ, who now bodily is in heaven above. I want to tell you, uh, take you one of the, the, the best texts which lays this out clearly. We're talking about mystical union because it sounds mysterious. When you use the word mystical union, it sounds so nebulous and uh, undefinable, really. But one text I think really draws out what this is, is Ephesians chapter 5. When Paul's talking about husbands and wives, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. There is the mystical union. It's very interesting because Paul commands husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. A lot of people take that to mean, well, just as a husband would love his own body, so he's to love his wife. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying he's to love his wife because she is his body. That's the point. 
There's a there's a profound mysterious oneness to our relationship with with uh, husbands and wife, and and we know that's his point because this, he develops it in twenty one uh, twenty nine. He says he he compares Christ nourishing us as believers in Him. Why does He do that? Why does Christ nourish us, His body? Because it says in verse 30, we are members of his body. That's the mystical union. We're individuals, but we're united to Christ. Somehow we are his body, even though we have our own. That's a mysterious idea, of course. Paul uses this creational phenomena, the intimacy between a husband and a wife in their marital relations, is the only thing really he can use in the creation to describe the interconnectedness the union between Christ and his people. Verse 32 of the same passage, he says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, let's let's think about this for a minute. Some people, when they hear us talk about the gospel, meaning that Christ takes away our sins when he died on the cross, and Christ gives his obedience to us, covers us in his obedience so that we will be rewarded uh, by God for his good works as if we did them themselves. Some people will accuse us of a legal fiction. In other words, yeah, you guys talk about God being fair by punishing Christ and by rewarding you for Christ's good works, but really that makes him unfair because it's not you. I mean, it's not like he ever really punished you for your sins, and it's not like you really ever obeyed so that he could reward you. And our answer to that is, that by virtue of the mystical union that we have with Christ, we can say, like Paul says in some places, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. You see, it's not just some abstract declaration that God makes that we are justified, that our sins have been put on Christ, and that his righteousness has been put on us. But you see, we have been mystically united to Christ so that his righteousness, his perfect holiness, is really ours. And we are now accepted by God because of what Christ did. So as one who has been mystically united to Christ and justified, I look around at other Christians, and I look in the mirror at my own self, and unfortunately, what I don't see is the perfect holiness of Christ in its fullness living out through me and through these other Christian people, as holy as they might be. And my desire as a Christian is to more and more live out the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. Where am I going to get that power? Well, I've got to have more of Christ in me. I want my mystical union with him to be intensified. And that is exactly why Christ has instituted the Lord's Supper. That in that ceremony of the Lord's Supper, he is intensifying his mystical union with us so that we will be more and more sanctified until the day of glorification. Okay, so we have this mystical union with Christ, and as you point out, we need to grow in it. And scripture clearly indicates that this intensifies over life. Okay, you say, well, how do we know that? Well, one of the first places we would turn to to establish that fact is the Lord's Supper itself. When Jesus in the institution of the supper says, take, eat, this is my body. Now, Christ obviously institutes this sacrament for a purpose, and that is so that we would uh, commune with his flesh and blood. We would commune with him. Now, if that doesn't intensify it, if that doesn't affect the union, then why would Christ establish such a sacrament to be perpetually used uh, throughout your life as a Christian within the context of the church. It would make no sense. 
You also have to see how the Apostle Paul warns the people in Corinth. He tells them, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then he tells them, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Then he says, our relation to one another. Since there is one bread or one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Here, the Apostle Paul is saying there is something that takes place that is beyond what our normal understanding of the material world would convey. There is a theological, a spiritual aspect to this, and that is God will have you commune directly with Christ through this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which shares in the sacrifice and work of Christ on the altar before God. Well, I think one of the texts you could use also— uh, by way of analogy, to to say that the there isn't an intensification going on in this union uh, with Christ is the very analogy the Apostle Paul sets up between uh, a man and a wife being duly and properly married, uh, as that bears out as an analogy of the church being united to Christ uh, unto His body. Clearly, uh, a man and a woman, once they are married, grow in the intensification of that oneness. It begins on, hopefully, on the night of their marriage, uh, physically, but throughout the context, throughout the, the growth of that marriage, obviously the oneness is intensifying. There's no way that a man and a wife are as absolutely as united uh, uh, in this oneness on the first day as that they will be 50 years later. It's very interesting. If you watch uh, a couple that's been together for 40, 50, 60 years, uh, you will see an almost an eerie similarity in them in a lot of ways. They begin to adapt each other's mannerisms and habits and forms of speech, and and there's a, a grow there is a conformity that grows in them to each other. And if that's an analogy to the uh, situation of us being united to Christ's body, certainly then that uh, should uh, carry its way out also into this relationship with Christ. That this relationship would intensify as we go. Maybe some of you have been exposed to some of the basic teachings of different Christian, broader Christian traditions about what was going on in the Lord's Supper, and you've been confused how they could come up with such crazy things. You might hear about how the Roman Catholic Church believes that the essence of the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper turns into the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Why did they come up with something like that? Well, they came up with that because they rightly understood, they're wrong about that transfer of properties of bread into the body and wine into the blood. They came up with that, though, because they understood that the Lord's Supper is an act of mystical union with the actual natural flesh and blood of Christ with us, with our flesh and blood. This is why the Lutheran Church said, well, we believe the Lord's Supper biblically is a mystical union and we have to commune with the body and blood of Christ. So we don't think that the bread changes into it, but Christ's actual body is in with and under the bread and in with and under the wine. Well, and certainly the words of institution of the Lord's Supper have been a powerful argument for the fact that there is a real communion with Christ in the Supper as we partake of the elements of bread and wine by faith. No matter how 
we try to uh, explain this concept, it, it seems very clear there from the words of Christ, take, eat, this is my body. But then he goes on. When you turn to John chapter 6, you begin to realize that Jesus, if we compare his words over against other words, which he spoke at other point in his ministry, you begin to realize that in the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus did actually intend to communicate that there was a real communion and a fellowshipping with him in the Supper. You read, for instance, uh, in John six fifty three, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. And I'll rise with the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, obviously, Jesus in John 6 is not advocating cannibalism of his flesh. And he's not he, talking about the Lord's Supper, per se, in this per instance, either. Right, but what he is talking about is the mystical union, that we do need to be united to his actual flesh and blood. Otherwise, we could never be accepted before God. It's not just some abstract declaration or abstract connection that we have to him. It is a spiritual, mystical connection that our flesh actually has with his flesh. Well, I think it's important to underscore that point again, is it's a communion with Christ by partaking of his flesh. He says, whoever eats my flesh, whoever drinks my blood, is hard as this is for us to understand, as strange as it even may sound to our ears, when we say mystical communion, ironically, I, for lack of a better word, it is a physical communion with Christ that's in a mystical mode, but it's still a communication with his physical body. Look, our critique primarily is against people who think about the Lord's Supper as merely some memorial service. Now, they are right to recognize that when we partake of the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine itself does not become the flesh and the blood of Jesus. But they are wrong, terribly wrong, when they say that all that the Lord's Supper is as a ceremony is a memorial service of his death. We actually believe the Bible is clear to teach that through these outward symbols in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which represents something else, meaning the bread representing his body, the wine representing his blood, through these outward symbols and through our eating of the bread and the wine, we are actually spiritually, mystically, more and more united with the actual flesh and blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This prevents us from having the memorialist there on the one hand, denying the mystical union, denying the intensification of that in the Lord's Supper. And on the other hand, this prevents us from the superstitious errors of thinking that Jesus is not in heaven anymore, but he actually is somehow found locally in the bread and the wine itself. Now, the reason we are harping on this is that we believe that God did not give this in a vain mode, that it is given as a very purposeful, very deliberate thing for us, and it is a means of grace. Even the Apostle Paul, when he is telling people that they are to partake of the Lord's Supper, he warns them, careful how you partake of it. It's not simply just an activity. It says, whoever eats the bread of the Lord, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Yeah, you know, that's such a beautiful argument against memorialism. How could it possibly affect you, of uh, partaking of the bread and wine? How could it possibly affect you spiritually or physically in an adverse way 
if there was no communion with Christ or God. It was just purely, just a, a really meager poor man's dinner. How yeah, could that affect you? If it lacks the reality, yeah. then the threat would have no validity. Uh, it had no punch to it at all. It would be zero. But I, I, I want to. I know what they're going to be saying out there. You memorialist people are saying, yeah, but doesn't Christ say, do this in remembrance of me? So there you go. That means that it's all about a... a a remembering, a commemorating, but there's no real communion. It's about thinking about what Christ did. Well, our argument or our answer to that is that we certainly agree that the Lord's Supper is a memorial service. It is a remembrance ceremony, but it's much more than that because God uses that memorial service that you are involved in, that memory in your mind that is represented to you by the bread and the wine, thinking about his blood and offered for you on the cross. He uses that mental dynamic that you have going on in your mind to intensify the mystical union. So it's not merely a memorial ceremony. It's much more going on but there. I, I think it's a mistake to even read the words in that way. And, I, and this is an argument I've been thinking of, and I'll try it out on you right here, is that... If you separate, if you separate the Lord's Supper and its, its observant apart from the actual facts of Christ's death and resurrection, then it's absolutely meaningless. The memory part, the the memory part of the Lord's Supper is the preached word, and so by virtue of preaching that word, there is a communion with Christ because that's one of the ways in which Christ gives Himself to His church. So it was never meant. These words should not ever simply just be interpreted to mean, well, I just was thinking about it. The remembrance comes through the preached word about the, it is the proclamation of the actual facts of redemption. Well, there's also another fallacy that's taking place here with the memorialists is that they reduce this event to a single purpose. And they say, well, it can't be anything else. If it's a memorial, then it can't be a real communion. When you invite friends over for dinner, it's not simply to feed them. You are bringing them over so you can enjoy their company as well. So both things can be taking place. They get nourishment. They also get company. And then in the marriage relationship, there's the physical relation between husband and wife, which is used for the procreation of children, but is also used to intensify their marital love for one another and also for joy and pleasure. Not one of them is absent at any of the uh, in any single event. Now, I want to take us back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, because I don't want you to miss the point that, that we were making. In verse 29, the Apostle Paul says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not discern the body or judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you are sleeping, meaning dying. God was pouring out wrath in the Corinthian church because the way they were celebrating the Lord's Supper did not reflect that they understood that the mystical union of Christ was being intensified as they partook. The problem in the church in Corinth was people were celebrating the Lord's Supper basically without each other. They didn't care. And the reason why that was a problem wasn't just because it was showing that there were factions in the church. It was a problem because... When people could not understand that what was really happening in the Lord's Supper was that the mystical union with the very body and blood of Christ was taking place, that led to them disregarding the other Christians who were one body with them by, by virtue of the mystical union. And God was so jealous for his own glory and so 
serious about his offering of the flesh and blood of his son for the life of his people through the Lord's Supper, that he poured out physical judgment in that congregation because they forsook it. And I am fearful of the Christian church, for the Christian church today. We have no idea about what the mystical union is. We've turned the Lord's Supper into some sort of emotional experience, something that I can use as a tool to make me feel closer to God or whatever, have no concept of the mystical union, no understanding of the intensification of it through the Lord's Supper, and the, that kind of thinking is what caused there to be judgment in the church on Corinth. And we sort of, we don't even care about the Lord's Supper today. We don't even have this discussion and debate in evangelical circles anymore. Well, would you say that this the whole angle you're taking here is that uh, if judgment was brought upon the church because of their desecrating the sacrament, could this memorialistic view lead to bringing more judgment on the church today uh, for those who embrace this idea, not only because they believe the wrong thing, but also because they don't care who takes the supper? Since it's purely a memorial service, there's no standards. There's no fencing of the table. There's no warning. It's just inviting everybody, come one, come all, no matter what your faith is or whatever, uh, because this is, a, this is a way you can get close to Jesus if well, you want yeah, to. Well, yeah, that's an example. Another example is the trivialization of the Lord's Supper. You have any Joe Schmo who feels you know, supposedly led by the Spirit on some youth group retreat or whatever, or the father in his house decides that they're going to have their own little Lord's Supper. It's an emotional people, experience. Right, you get a little lemonade and crackers together, yeah. and you so, have the so-called Lord's Supper. See, all of these practices that are so common today are a result of the perversion of the understanding of the mystical union and the intensification of it in the Lord's Supper. You would not do this kind of thing if you really understood what the Lord's Supper was. And yes, I am fearful for judgment in the professing churches of the Lord Jesus Christ when they treat the Lord's Supper this way. There's also a danger that we have to see that is behind all this. And that is the reason why it's viewed in such a poor manner. It goes back to what John said originally. People are viewing Christ as simply the gateway into salvation, simply as the gateway into the church. And after that, it's all man's work. I was at a restaurant. Well, i got to cut you off because the classic example of this was at a restaurant last week, and I met a guy who was absolutely plastered. I mean, he was drunk just out of his gourd. And basically, I sat down with him, and we're talking. He was telling me about his life and what he did for a living, and he asked me what I did for a living. And I told him he wouldn't believe it if I told him. And then he said, no, now I really want to know. And I told him I was a preacher. And he said, oh, really? That's great, because I'm a Christian too. And I said, oh, is that right? And he said, don't judge me immediately. He said, don't judge me. And I said, I'm not judging. I'm just, I think that's interesting. And he told me, listen, I, about seven years ago, accepted Jesus into my heart. And he forgave me of all my sins. Now, here's a guy who, as in the course of the conversation I come to find out, wasn't just having this one time of falling into the temptation of drunkenness, but this was what this guy did. Every night, he'd work hard during the day. He was part of a, a union where he worked hard labor. And every day, he'd go to the bar, to a restaurant, and he'd just get drunk. And he talked about his girlfriends and all the rest. Of it. But he was a Christian, I'm telling you. Now, the point I'm bringing out is that this guy is a perfect example of how Jesus just saves me in the decision that I made. But there is no communion with Christ in this guy's understanding. There's no growth in holiness. There's no connection in, there's no real salvific connection between Christ and this man. And that's the great danger is that we fail to understand that apart from Christ, we cannot grow one iota in the Christian life. Sanctification is not by sheer will and force. It's entirely by grace. 
And that is by Christ is what it's by. It's by Christ living out in us. So what we have to then deal with here is the reality that this is part of what is sanctifying us. It is growing us in grace. And so to divorce our growth and sanctification from the active work of Christ still in us is to completely misunderstand what we have been saved into and what we are called to be. Yeah, but nobody believes that. That's the whole problem. Nobody actually believes that um, you're actually sanctified by eating this little teeny tiny little crumb of bread and a thimble full of wine on Sunday. Nobody believes that because they all know that the best way to grow in sanctification is to go have a, a really thrilly, thrilling experience, to get emotionally jacked up. Devotions. Uh, to go on a pilgrimage, devotions, daily prayer times, getting camp. a men's study, something. Church camp. You know? Yeah, yeah. Christian education. Everybody knows you can, but you know Youth what group. that is? That's works. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 10. This, I mean, wonderful chapter explaining why preaching is a means of grace. But before he gets to that point, he says, Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word we proclaim uh, to you. Now, it's interesting here what Paul is saying. It's, it's an argument for we traditionally call these means of grace. The preached word and the sacraments is a means of grace. And one thing we mean by that is it's a gracious means. God sanctifies us by his grace, yes, but even the means are gracious. God doesn't call upon you to ascend into heaven to get a hold of Jesus. God doesn't call upon you to, to plunge to the depths of the earth to go find Jesus. He brings Jesus to you and he puts him on your tongue. And says, here, here's grace. You don't have to go to all these things, knocking yourself out, you know, to work and labor and, and find your way to the prayer groups, accountability times, yod. No, Christ, God comes to you and gives you Christ. That's Christianity right. is not being chosen onto a team and then performing well so you can stay on the team. It's a complete misunderstanding, but that's how many people see it. God chose me. I'm on the team now, so I'd better work hard or I'm going to get booted off or get placed back on the bench. Instead, no, you are saved and made part of the body of Christ through this mystical union. And the head knows the needs of every part of the body and nourishes it. And the, the intensification of that mystical union through the Lord's Supper has to be central in the lives of Christian people, in the life of the Christian church. Now, before we finish off, we got to smack our own a little bit because this is not like... I mean, let's just face it. People in Reformed churches, do they understand this mystical? No. I mean, no. frankly, a lot of times the Lord's Supper in our own circles has been reduced to an emotional experience. We hear this over and over and over again. People will only partake of the Lord's Supper if it meets the standards of some emotional experience that they have turned it into while they've partaken of it when they were young or ever since they right. professed faith. Now, listen— if you believe that the Lord's Supper, which it is, is a, an intensification of the mystical union with the Lord Jesus Christ, then it has objective value for us and, and nourishment for us, necessary nourishment for us, regardless of how it makes you feel when you partake of it. I mean, we wouldn't say that, that things have value only insofar as we experience in our emotions the joy of it. I mean, I hope that Christians will experience the right. joy of partaking of the Lord's Supper when they do, but it still has value right. and well, a necessity but, for us regardless of that. But but I'll give you a couple reasons why I think this has happened in the Reformed uh, faith. Number one, you say tradition. Yeah. It was given so infrequently that by the time you did have it, it was built up into this, just this 
really emotionally charged situation. And that's how they got a grace out of it because they could tell this was really serious because everybody was very tense and worked up and all tight over this. And they had to go through all these little perform, jump through all these hoops. So up the preparation services, they really had to clean up their lives. I mean, there was a lot of stuff they had to do. So it was a really strong emotional experience. And because of that, when you start having it more frequently, they say, well, man, I, I just don't feel the same thing. It was a big thing to them because it was so infrequent and so much baggage was, and so right. much emotion was charged into That's it. That's right. And you see what happens. Subtly, the Lord's Supper got redefined from having meaning and value and glory in and of itself to the meaning, glory, and value being in my subjective experience of it. And that is just not acceptable. That is idolatrous. But is one other is. reason why I think this has uh, really fallen on hard times even among reform circles is because uh, if we can't understand it, we don't like it. I can't understand how I'm united to Christ in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, it must not be happening. You mean, John, you can't explain to me how through these earthly symbols of bread and wine, I, by the Holy Spirit, am lifted up to the heavenly places to be mystically united to Jesus Christ in heaven, wherever that is? I mean, you can't explain. No, you, of course. So people reject it. Right. Well, listen, our hope for this program was that you would be excited to rediscover the biblical teaching about the Lord's Supper, and that you would get rid of all of your idolatrous views of it and embrace it as the glorious gift of Christ to his church, where we can find Christ, who is our righteousness, holiness, and sanctification. You've got to be in a church that understands this and that administers it according to the command of Christ. If you're not, then you're saying that you don't want Christ. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.